It's going to be a base-filled year. The flipping still on the table. LSD5 is going to be the chief narrative. I strongly agree with that take, Westy. And CCTP is going to eat the bridges. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Zero X Research. This show is made possible thanks to our wonderful sponsor, the Atom Accelerator. It has never been a more attractive time to build in the cosmos. Uh, if you're a contributor looking for grants, the Atom Accelerator offers grants between $10,000 and $1 million. So be sure to check out the link in the show notes. Uh, today is May 31st, and we have a really fun episode today lined up uh, with the BlockWorks research team. We're going to start out with a little segment of Hot Seat, Cool Throne, and then transition over to some predictions for the back half of 2023. Uh, Westy, why don't I kick it over to you for your Hot Seat or Cool Throne? Yeah, sounds good. Um... So yeah, on the day of this recording, May 31st, um, I have actually OP in the hot seat because today it saw its largest unlock equivalent to that of roughly 114% of the current circulating supply. So obviously a giant unlock. And this caused the token to dump roughly 17% over the past few days in anticipation of this unlock and hasn't really seen a bounce uh, since it's happened. Um, and this is also the start of sort of the vesting unlock in general where I think every month from now on until sometime in 2027, we're gonna see half a percent of the sub total supply being unlocked every month. And so, yeah, a big overhang for OP, um, pretty bad trading uh, week for OP. And I just wonder, we have like a lot of upcoming events for Optimism. So the Bedrock upgrade this week, we have World Coins launch, I think in June and then Basis Testnet pretty soon. And so I wonder like, is this enough to cause a bounce after the unlock or will the overhangs over time also be a little too much as liquidity is pretty dry at the moment. Yeah, I agree that the unlock is pretty big. I think I saw a thread out there that said historically some foundations or teams have tried to time these unlocks with protocol upgrades. So for example, the unlock is coming out today and Bedrock is supposed to come out, I think on June 7th or maybe June 11th. Um, I'm not too sure, but next within the next two weeks i think another thing that i think about when it comes to token unlockings is that in web 2 like in that world the same thing happens you know like you have startup founders they get vested equity they have like a one-year cliff that equity vests over four years and the only thing is that they can't start it until an ipo and if you kind of think about it I'm not really sure that makes sense, you know. For example, if you stay at a startup for two years, you've done an amazing job of bringing it to market, but just because of how like traditional public markets work, you have to wait 10 more years for an IPO to happen. And only then can you sort of like receive your compensation or your upside in helping build out their product. I'm not sure that's the best model and the best incentives, but also you have the converse argument, right? In crypto, these large unlocks, it means everyone can dump already but i feel like that's mostly a function of the market not being efficient and pricing everything too highly right the valuations are too high and that's enabling these founders to basically unlock and dump these token high valuations and cash up without their product having reached any semblance of product market fit if the valuations were much lower sure people would whine because like the token price didn't go up but also I think that would make a lot more sense in terms of like equity slash token being liquid upon vesting in a crypto context. 
Yeah, I agree with that, Ren. I'm also just like, like you said, Westy, all the catalysts coming up. Like we have base mainnet coming pretty soon, bedrock. We've got uh, world coin. Like it's, it's kind of to me going to shape out like maybe more so how the cosmos ecosystem did in that like the hub isn't necessarily the central value accrual token uh, with Adam and maybe OP becomes the same. I think a lot of that will probably hinge on whether uh, every OP stack chain actually returns some of the revenue from the sequencer back to the OP public goods funding because that is a pretty enticing flywheel right there if it becomes a standard kind of how airdropping tokens to Adam stakers did over in the Cosmos. Um, but yeah, definitely tough to uh, see how it plays out considering every OP stack chain is going to have their own centralized sequencer. Yeah, yeah. Good thing to bring out and point up, Westy. I like that one. Ren, what do you got this week? This week, I have Tiger Global in the hot seat. So in November 2021, they invested $555 million into MoonPay at a $3.4 billion valuation. For those that are unfamiliar, MoonPay is sort of an on-ramp, off-ramp service provider, so to say. Um, Tiger Global launched this $12.7 billion venture fund at October 2021, which was kind of peak bull market, and they deployed, I think, I would guess from that fund, a lot of it into MoonPay. By the end of 2022, that fund had a paper loss of 20%, and it basically got spewed out that MoonPay sort of siphoned $150 million out of the company for their own use. The CEO bought a $38 million mansion in Miami. And Kobe also came out last night saying that at one point he got an intro to the head of Tiger to help them with their investments because he was like, what are you guys doing? Like your investments are garbage. Um, and basically the head of Tiger stayed high, ignored all of Kobe's messages and then left the Telegram chat and basically ignored Kobe for good. So. I think the moral of the story here is that over the past one or two years, we've seen a lot of companies deploy a huge amount of large checks into um, like quote unquote established or larger crypto companies, FTX being the most notable one, um, Celsius with that Canadian pension fund investing $150 million into that. And a lot of these have been at absurdly high valuations, right? Like $3.4 billion for a Series A is pretty unheard of in the Web2 world. But perhaps one could also make an argument based on some funky math, say, hey, if 10 years down the road, 1 billion people in the world use crypto and X percent of them need to on-ramp off-ramp and they don't want to do it through a centralized exchange account, MoonPay will facilitate that. MoonPay will take X percent of that on-ramp thing. Then perhaps you can arrive at like a magical $3.4 billion valuation. But overall, that still seems high to me. I think another news that came out um, over the past week was that the people that invested in FTX out of the Singapore pension fund, they got their pay cut by a pretty hefty amount. So I guess there is some accountability out there rather than just like, randomly chucking checks at these companies, right? Um, but then there's also been arguments, right? As a VC, sometimes you do need these VCs that are a bit further out on the risk curve to fund these sort of like industry-changing, paradigm-shifting companies. And if everyone that works at a VC rather plays it, uh, prefers to play it safe by not funding these type of companies, it's very possible 
that a lot of like sort of the billion, hundred billion dollar companies in cities just don't exist because everyone in VCs become risk adverse and they don't want to invest in like the next Celsius, the next FTX, and the next moon pay. So yeah, but I have Tiger Globe on the hot seat because they ignored Kobe. <laughs> Yeah, definitely a, a bad look for the industry as a whole, honestly. Like seeing these larger players get wrapped up in these types of uh, scenarios is is pretty brutal. Um I mean the TLDR is like do your due due diligence. Surely a firm of that quality would have been able to dig in a little bit, do some DD like they do for every other investment they've made, um and kind of arrive at a conclusion that maybe this is a bad call. Um, but clearly that didn't happen. So you'd have to wonder is like, were they just trying to be like, okay, we got to allocate to crypto instead of doing the, you know, the protocols themselves, let's kind of hit the on off ramp space. Maybe that's a little safer. Like we just got to be in this space because our LPs are demanding it. Um, but it's just not really where, where we want to be. That's kind of what I think would have happened. But again, I wasn't sitting in that room, so I, I truly have no idea. Yeah, I'm just still salty at MoonPay because I tried to buy Pepe at like a $20 million market cap on the Uniswap mobile app and I got my transaction denied. So they uh, single-handedly screwed me out of $10,000, $10, $15,000. So yeah, I, I think that's a good hot seat there. And, but uh, I can take it over for my uh, cool throne. I've actually got the Noble and Celestia partnership. So <clears throat> Noble is the gen general asset issuance chain in the Cosmos ecosystem. And then Celestia is a DA layer that's building using uh, the Cosmos stack and they are enabling the minting of native USDC by default for any modular chain that leverages Celestia as a DA layer. Um, this is really important for a lot of different reasons. Basically, in order to have a vibrant DeFi ecosystem, stable coins are incredibly important. Uh, and that's been a main uh, pain point for the Cosmos, actually. But now that they have USDC, I feel like there's going to be a lot less liquidity fragmentation. It'll be easier to bootstrap a solid um, DeFi ecosystem. There's even talk about using USDC as gas tokens for these uh, modular uh, sovereign rollups. So super exciting development. I'm not really sure how exactly it plays out, but I'm curious to get your guys' thoughts on um, what do you think the main use case for, for sovereign rollups will be? Yeah, I definitely think that this is a huge development. I mean, you look at Cosmos, I feel like the reason that their DeFi hasn't taken off despite them being around for a while is because there wasn't that like native stable coin. And, and like you said, there was that fragmented liquidity. And now that you know that Celestia off the bat is going to have native USDC there, like with the ability to use it, I think that's going to supercharge a lot of the growth in Celestia to, to start where may, maybe otherwise they, they sort of had like a slow start over time. I think that's really going to jumpstart things. And I, yeah, I do think that's a good question what the main use for sovereign rollups will be. Um, I think like using Celestia as a DA layer, which is going to be a lot cheaper than even Ethereum under dank sharding. Like, I think there's going to be a lot of really, really cool use cases, specifically like ZK sovereign rollups on Celestia, where they can post proofs like continuously to the DA layer um, and have like really quick block times, uh, synchronous composability across different rollups with something like uh, the, the sovereign SDK that's being built. Like, I think there's going to be a lot of really, really cool use cases high throughput use cases. And I think, to be honest, like that's where the, the roll-up vision that we all think of, where you have many different roll-ups that are all composable with one another. I think that's what, where they, there will happen is on Celestia through these sovereign roll-ups. One thing that's interesting is the fact that USDC will be have such a first mover advantage 
as the native fiat stablecoin. You know, presumably Tether's thinking, hey, we got to, you know, copycat following these footsteps, but we haven't seen any of those actions being taken. Um, so it, it, it's interesting to think about, right? Because everybody in the, over the last six, 12 months has been like, all right, there's like three major ecosystems, the, the high throughput chains like Solana, Ethereum, and app chains through the Cosmos ecosystem. And so the fact that, you know, we already have USDC and Tether on Solana, but they, and obviously it's very much so perforated on, um, Ethereum itself, as well as Ethereum's L2s, we haven't really seen that happen in the cosmos ecosystem and so i wonder like if we do get this cambrian explosion of DeFi applications and use cases you know now we have mars to offer leverage neutrons coming um and providing that general purpose area to come build DeFi applications and if we do start moving in this world it's like you know is this going to be a miss for tether is, is kind of where i'm thinking and uh it's definitely good for DeFi to have you know, that trustworthy fiat stablecoin uh, that can provide that one-to-one -one pegged value. But, you know, you almost kind of want that market diversity to kind of shard some of the risk of relying on a single asset. So I'm curious to see how that plays out from uh, more of this stablecoin view. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Sorry, go ahead, Ren. No, I was going to say, um, it seems like Tether is leaning very heavily into sort of all of its Bitcoin operations between the buying of Bitcoin using its uh, interest income and also starting its mining operations in Uruguay. I haven't seen anything infrastructure infrastructure related, like in terms of on-chain infrastructure from Tether at all, whereas Circus is just running circles around everyone with the launch of CCTV and then now with USCC being able, uh, being able to be natively minted on the Celestia chains and Cosmos chains. I think one thing that I never really thought about was that, like, what do wrapped assets like even look like on a sovereign rollup, right? Assuming they all use like a DA layer, like, assuming USDC doesn't kind of uh, natively mint USDC, uh, sorry, assuming Circle doesn't natively mint USDC on a DA layer for a sovereign rollup, right? Like, the people have to bridge from Ethereum to the DA layer and then that like bridges down to the sovereign rollout like that gets like really messy and a lot of the use cases that I envision for sovereign rollouts I think there's a lot of them that are either kind of like institutions or like mass adoption sort of like for example deep in applications and most of those would want a stable coin right you don't want people to transact for your business or for your deep in protocol in like ETH or maybe even a native token, like you still want that payment to be made in a stable coin or at least like something US dollar denominated. So I think USDC coming to all of these chains natively is a pretty big unlock. And of course, there's a whole sort of discussion that sparked over the weekend from John Sharp's like rollups piece, like what is a rollup? Um, and I think that has given a lot of us sort of a bit of food for thought into the differences between a native asset and a wrapped asset on a roll-up and what that really means when like shit goes wrong for lack of a better term yeah yeah good point point things to point out ren um I'll, i guess i can give my hot seat cool throne this week but honestly i think i'm gonna have to leave this one to the audience to decide if it's a hot seat or a cool throne um, I'm bringing Maker out of the table for their continued development and building. Um, you know, the end game has been largely in discussion, and I think most people still don't really get 
what it is, um, but we're starting to see the cards unfold uh, and into what that direction looks like. And the kind of initial steps of building out this plan um, are centered around this uh, borrowing rate increase for MakerDAO itself. So a couple big changes that are coming that uh, I'm going to walk through real quick here. So uh, through MakerDAO's RWA exposure, they're earning the like essentially the risk-free rate provided by the U.S. Treasury through the uh, their exposure to T-bills. And they are now returning some of that yield to the DAI stablecoin itself as the what they call the DAI savings rate. So this proposal that is set to go live in a few days um, actually brings a 3.49% yield to DAI. They are calling this like the DSR again, the DAI savings rate. And so this brings a very interesting change to the ecosystem because we haven't really seen the ability to earn on-chain yield at scale before, um, from specifically from T-bills. And so now with MakerDAO supplying this, there's a few major changes that also come along with this around increasing the, um, the cost of borrowing from on-chain collateral. So examples of that are like borrowing against your ETH through Oasis or borrowing against uh, your wrap-staked ETH in Spark protocol. Um, so that is a very interesting diversion they're making is saying, hey, we're going to provide yield native yield to the DAI stablecoin itself. However, we're going to charge you more on your uh, like on-chain collateral borrowing. So very, very interesting because a lot of the MakerDAO team themselves is like, this is going to completely change DeFi. The cost of borrowing is going to, going to go up for specifically for DAI, but also for other stablecoins. And like, let's walk through why they believe that to be the case. So specifically for DAI, you know, on Aave, the borrow rate is roughly three-ish percent, let's call it. And if that is below the DAI savings rate, then there's like this very obvious carry trade or arbitrage that can be captured where I provide collateral to Aave, I borrow DAI against that collateral, and then I just take that DAI and plug it into the, the DAI savings rate. Uh, and then I earn the spread between what I'm paying for the, the, the loan versus what uh, MakerDAO is paying me. So like that gap will get closed and DAI will become more expensive to borrow on Aave. So this is like effectively pulling up the cost to borrow for all DAI stablecoins across the entire DeFi ecosystem. Um, now, you could also say the same thing will happen to USDC, right? Because there's kind of the ability, the PSM creates that that gap where I can just borrow USDC from Aave, use the PSM to flip it into DAI and then collect that savings rate again. And then the increased demand to do so will kind of close that gap um, as people come in and take advantage of that. Now, one thing that I personally think that is getting overthought of in this is that is specifically a peer to pool borrowing model where lender suppliers deposit assets to earn yields that's generated from borrowers coming to the same protocol um, and taking out loans against that collateral and paying interest on those loans to do so. That will increase the borrow rate for those protocols, but we have two scalable models in DeFi, and that's the peer-to-pool. But the peer-to-protocol, similar to what MakerDAO is doing, the protocol itself is responsible for creating the rate that people can borrow against. So an example of this is Curve's new stablecoin. That is the it's a it's a bit of a complicated formula we can walk through at another time but essentially there is like a rate a market rate that isn't determined by anybody else it's called rate zero is this this specific thing i'm referring to and that like determines where this curve sits and it doesn't matter what the cost to borrow die is 
in this in this model in my opinion like i don't see how that's going to try to like impact this rate but i think it will bring some interesting changes to DeFi. i i kind of think some of the MakerDAO team is, is is overstating the impact it'll have and then again this is crypto in a bear market so nothing is efficient in the first place um but yeah i'm curious to get your guys take around how you think bringing the increasing the dsr to 3.49 percent as well as increasing the cost to borrow against ETH and ETH derivative collateral. Uh, what kind of bring, changes do you expect to, that to bring to DeFi? Yeah, I think you brought up a great point in that it's going to increase the borrow rate of DAI on these external uh, sort of like pool to protocol or peer to pool models, as you said, but it, Maker themselves sets their own interest rates. And so you can imagine in the future, and this is the take of Effort Capital, fellow analyst of ours, and I agree with it fully, is that as they continue to scale up their RWAs, you can imagine that the die savings rate gets above the risk-free rate in TradFi. And then as a result, Maker can say, hey, we're going to basically rug all the interest rates on our other loans, on our, our eth back loan, et cetera. And so DAI becomes extremely cheap to borrow within Maker itself, and DAI has a really, really high savings rate. Uh, for higher adoption within DeFi. So yeah, I think this is a really strong move for Maker. And I think, yeah, like you said, it's going to bring up the the rates within DeFi, uh, force other people to be more competitive. And I think overall, it's going to be good for adoption of Maker and DeFi as a whole. Yeah, one thing to expand on that you just brought up, which is pretty interesting, is this kind of becomes like a hurdle rate or an on-chain risk-free rate. And it's like, if I can just do nothing and get paid by uh, staking my DAI or swapping it to SDAI is this like DSR accruing uh, version of DAI. And if I could do nothing and just earn that, that becomes a bit more interesting to be like, all right, so let's say I own Frax. Now I have to go like you know stake that through a curve pool put that into convex and like you know get like crv and cvx and fxs yield turn that into my, like another you know stable coin to like kind of capture that yield that's like a lot of work as opposed to just staking die um so this does definitely make a very interesting uh use case for like this this baseline hurdle rate or baseline uh risk-free rate across DeFi, which i do think is kind of what the the maker guys are, are referring to and they mentioned the impact it's going to have across all of the DeFi ecosystem. I think one thing that I think about when it comes to risk-free rate is that will crypto ever have its own risk-free rate? You know, like in TradFi, everyone knows the risk-free rate is the rate that you get on the U.S. Treasury bill or like the current federal funds rate. Um, but crypto, I think for a decent amount of us represents like a paradigm shift, right? Maybe there's a world in which we have two different types of risk-free rates. One is ETH-denominated risk-free rates, and one is US dollars-denominated risk-free rates. Maybe there's a world where uh, when TradFi eventually comes on change in size, there's a different risk, uh, there's a different rate curve on-chain than off-chain, just due to external factors such as smart contract risk. Or maybe there's a lower risk-free rate on-chain compared to off-chain because, I don't know, maybe there's no counterparties on-chain and people think that that's less risky than your counterparty being the United States government. You know, I think that's a very interesting like discussion for people to have. And I don't think it'll be even too surprising if, at least for now, people in crypto think of risk-free rate as the ETH staking yield, for example, and then apply that to the US dollar. So like, okay, the ETH staking yield is 5%. Now my US dollar risk-free rate is 5%. Even those 
even though ETH is a volatile asset and US dollar is like one US dollars. I think there's a lot of mental models that I just didn't think about. But at the end of the day, risk-free rate is basically social consensus is what the world and the larger society thinks the risk-free rate is. So it'll be interesting to see that discussion continue as crypto develops. And I think the answer to that depends on whether TradFi and institutions come in size or not on chain in the next five, 10 years. Yeah, I agree with that, Ren. That's like a, a really interesting like psychological question. I think it's going to take a lot of time before people actually accept a crypto denominated asset as a a risk-free rate, but I do think one day we will we will see that world. But uh, Dan, you want to tell us what's new with the Atom Accelerator? Absolutely. As always, we got to give a shout out to our wonderful sponsors over at the Atom Accelerator. Um, you know, again, the message we really want to bring to everyone today is: if you're a developer, the place to build is is quickly becoming the Atom Economic Zone. Uh, you know, with again, we actually put uh, Neutron in the in Noble in the the Cool Throne this week because of everything they're doing. Uh, the idea of building on this new bustling hub of DeFi is super powerful. Powerful, and again, with native USDC coming uh, to the Cosmos, it kind of unlocks the ability to build new and exciting products that really haven't had that uh, stable form of value uh, to be to be practical in the past. And with uh, technology like IBC giving you the flexibility of interoperability with other chains across the ecosystem, you kind of get this, this mesh type network of, of app chains that can all communicate with each other and build exciting products. And so again, as Sam mentioned earlier, the Atom Accelerator is giving grants from 10000 to $1 million um, and, and really kind of doing that on a rolling monthly basis to incentivize people that are like, hey, you know, we have this crazy idea. We think it's going to be great for the ecosystem, um, but we kind of need some help, capital help building this thing out. And so the Atom Accelerator uh, is here to bring those things to fruition. So if that is something that you're interested in doing, be sure to check out the link in the show notes. Um, we've got a great way. They have a great website to kind of help guide you through what the process of, of getting involved looks like. Um, so with that, be sure to check out the Atom Accelerator. Uh, and so moving into the back half of the show, uh, I want to talk about some 2023 predictions that our team has uh, for what we expect to see in DeFi, as well as all across the crypto ecosystem. So at the start of the year, we did uh, an episode where we talked about some things or some ideas we had about, uh, about what's coming for the next year. And we wrote a report on this that's live uh, for free on the BlockWorks Research website. We'll link that in the show notes as well. Um, but we kind of got take a take a second to review some of these. Um, some of them have certainly fallen apart, but others look quite good. And I think we want to hit on both notes. Um, so Sam, let me uh, let me let me pick on you first here. I'd love to hear about your thoughts about you know what you have in mind for the back half of the year. Um, and if you held this like idea or, or thought at the beginning of the year. Yeah. So I think my 2023 prediction from the episode back in, I think it was the end of December, early January. I think I actually said that a major OG DeFi protocol would launch as an L3 somewhere in, in some ecosystem. So obviously that has not come to fruition yet. Still got quite a bit of time. I don't really have as high conviction on that statement as before. I feel like back then everyone was talking about L3s and right now it's more OP stack and, and modular stuff. So so we'll see if that vision actually comes to fruition. But for this uh, prediction for the back half of 2023, I'm going to go with uh, base alts outperforming the market. 
So base is set to launch on mainnet sometime within the next couple months, basically just waiting on a few things from the OP uh, foundation to get to get launched live, one of which being bedrock. But I'm just anticipating a large swath of activity on base in the months following mainnet launch, given just Coinbase's app, their wallet, large number of verified users. You know, we've talked about this uh, ad nauseum, to be honest. I also just think there's going to be a ton of development coming directly from the Coinbase team themselves building dApps um, that could potentially be monetized in some way for Coinbase, the company. So I think there'll be quite a bit to do over there. Not super confident that they'll have a very vibrant DeFi ecosystem, just given how, you know, regulatory purview under DeFi, like I feel like those two don't exactly cross too well. So I'm expecting more things like maybe social applications, gaming, payments, things of that nature with Coinbase Pay. I feel like payments has has high potential. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, back in 2021 or so, you know, you saw Matic rip super hard, BNB, Soul, like all these L1 tokens. But for Arbitrum, it was GMX because obviously Arbitrum did not have a token at that point. So I just feel like there's going to be speculation and it can't be on base token because there is going to be no such token. So I do think alts over there will perform pretty well. Um, obviously, the main risk here being uh, execution, um, maybe a lack of interest from users because there is no token. Cause I think everyone ultimately knew eventually there's going to be an Arbitrum token and for base, it's going to be the opposite. Not sure exactly how that influences things. And then also regulatory risk as a, a Coinbase being the, the sole sequencer operator. I'm very curious to see if the SEC comes at them for, from that angle, but nonetheless, I think, uh, it's a pretty solid bet going into the back half of the year. Yeah, I'm a pretty big fan of that bet. Um, yeah, like you said, there's a lot of interest on the developer side of things in terms of base. So there's a lot of projects that want to build there. And that's because Coinbase has all the users that they do have. And so you can imagine it's a perfect storm in which you have a lot of great applications and a lot of users <clears throat> that are looking to dip their toes into DeFi, especially institutional users that use Coinbase. So I'm guessing if their first Fourier wasn't into something like ETH DeFi or L2s that maybe it's it's based specifically because they feel more comfortable. So yeah, I think there's a good chance that, you know, base does really well out the jump in terms of TVL and that as a result, the alts on the back of that do, do really well as well. Do you think it'll be a fully permissionless chain? Like, can anybody just go build there and can anybody just go use there? Because I'm torn on, I got, I, first of all, has anyone heard if like they've made an official statement that's like, here's the answer to how you use base? I know that the team came out and said that it is going to be fully permissionless. So I do think that anyone can build there if they want to and launch whatever dApp. The only thing is, though, I think Coinbase is taking this approach because in the past they've tried going to the SEC, you know, talking about like how should we actually register some of these <laughs> some of these token listings? Like how does this work? So I think now they're doing the opposite approach. I think they're like, you know what, we're just going to do it and then deal with the repercussions afterwards. So I could see a world where it gets a little crazy and then all of a sudden the SEC is coming after Coinbase and Coinbase is forced to maybe censor some transactions and only include KYC users or something among the sorts. But I think off the rip, it'll be as permissionless as OP itself or Arbitrum or really any other chain. All right. Well, that's definitely great to hear. Um, and it's like, yeah, it'll be interesting to see if like, you know, meme coins would have been such a topic in the beginning half of this year, largely just because of how bored everybody's been uh, in the depths of a bear market. But it would just be funny if like 
there's meme coins ripping on this you know centralized providers l2 that just sounds so funny to me like if you think of meme coins as this like uh you know true casino it's like a pure form of a casino i think the a thousand x guys you know even brought up the the, the fact there's like 75 billion dollars of gambling spend annually on in uh or it's not sorry sorry lottery ticket spending strictly in the u.s annually which is a crazy number and like if you think of meme coins as just like the same type of thing you know you're effectively buying a scratch off when you don't know if it's a rug or not um it'd just be funny to have that type of activity happening on Coinbase's L2. So it'll be interesting to see if they try to guide a certain class of builder there. Like, um, you know, I've seen Jesse tweeting about like, Hey, if you need ETH or girly ETH on base to go, you know, make some work on testnet, basically test out an idea, go for it. I got you Send me your ENS. I'll give you some ETH to go build. And so they've been like actively trying to bring in that class of builder, uh, that's like here right now. And so like, that's definitely the builder trying to build something super interesting and here for the long term, as opposed to something short term and scammy, which is interesting because if you think about the legal repercussions, as you mentioned, Sam, it's like, is Coinbase going to be viewed as responsible for any illicit activity going on on base? Like they probably shouldn't be, but at the end of the day, they're likely going to be the sole sequencer operator. So how does that work? I think for base, one thing that I think about is obviously it's going to be like operated by Coinbase. The single sequencer is going to be permissionless. And on one hand, you could say, hey, all of these protocols are going to want to fork and launch on base because it's like the like quote unquote institutional chain is going to have 110 million KYC users that can come from Coinbase exchange. But I wonder if there's maybe an alternative version of this where a protocol goes, hey, like Coinbase is launching this, you know, they're a public company, they're under SEC scrutiny. Maybe I don't want to launch on base because if something happens to base, I get swept up in the whole, this whole thing. Like, I don't know, maybe base becomes a, a fully like permission regulatory chain. And suddenly I've been operating on there without like a money transmitter license because I facilitate lending borrowing or something of that sort. You know, I think that's definitely an angle to this. And I think another thing that I think about is what are the types of new protocols that are going to launch on base for sure on day one there's going to be like 20 different blue chip DeFi protocols that are just going to fork and launch on base but i'm super curious as to what are the new protocols that will launch on base look like is it just going to be your standard you know like you have your perf stacks your concentrated liquidity like amen or are we going to get some real innovation that sort of integrates to the 110 million KYC users that Coinbase has or something that actually like has value in the real world rather than just trading or gambling? Yeah, that's a great point, Ren. Like, you know, I, I think about gaming quite a bit for something I don't know much about, like specifically in the on-chain uh, on-chain gaming realm. You know, we just saw Framework do another $10 million round into Alluvium um and or they led that round i don't know if they took the whole round but uh, nonetheless like they're always talking about gaming and they're some of the best in the space so it, it's interesting to see if like coinbase will take that gaming approach considering like they already have this thing that nobody else has which is users a ton of people use the coinbase app they're going to start pushing people into the coinbase wallet and then you're you're right there you're probably the default uh place the the default chain you'll probably be using within the the coinbase app at some point will be base uh, and so yeah sure you can go change it yourself but most people don't know that right out of the gates so it's like going to be really interesting to see how they funnel from the coinbase 
um, application to the Coinbase wallet to base. I feel like that's kind of their their top of market funnel. So it'll be super interesting to watch this one play out. Yeah, I actually already noticed the other day that Coinbase's app has like a top games kind of like list. So like I feel like that could easily be one of the one of the things for base. Like because that's a way to circumnavigate kind of the the app store debacle because like you kind of have a little mini app store within the coinbase app itself so curious if app would be smart enough to catch onto that little loophole but nonetheless yeah i agree with your take there dan that i think gaming is a pretty prime candidate for base i feel like we hit that one pretty well though dan do you want to go with uh your back half prediction yeah so i uh i wrote about the flipping back in the the end of 2022 and um Still, I still believe in it. Actually, I do. Even though I, I quite literally top ticked the the ETH BTC chart with my uh, my tweet thread on kind of explaining why it's li- quite literally been down only since the day of the tweet. But nonetheless, it still it still just makes sense to me. So if we think about things going on on Bitcoin, you know, it's maturing. It's getting you know used more. We're seeing more activity. It's had the recent rise of ordinals, which has been an exciting development. Um, but Ordinals are, I, 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 I get them, they make sense, and they're uh, something to do on Bitcoin, um, but they still feel very gimmicky uh, and don't seem to have any practical purpose at all, uh, which is, is just seems like it, it's not going to work. So example of that is like if I want to buy a thousand Pepe and there's not a thousand Pepe available for sale, I have to buy like three lots that equal a thousand Pepe to just like total that out. Conversely, if I want to sell a thousand of meme, whatever meme token there is, then someone has to buy that entire lot out of me. You can't like break it up. Um, and that's just like obviously not a scalable way to have anything. It's not a token standard. It's not like an ERC 20 where you actually have individual tokens. Um, so it, it's, it's just like feels like you're shoving a, a square peg in a round hole. I think we've said that a couple of times now, but, um, so to me, ordinals like aren't truly lasting. And I'll throw this chart uh, in the show notes. But uh, what we have is a, a Bitcoin miner revenue chart. And if you look at that historically and say, all right, well, what percentage of the total Bitcoin miner revenue fees were from transaction fees versus block subsidies? And I will I will say this is a, a nod in the direction of, of the anti-flippening crowd that uh, just this, this month in May, um the total block sub- subsidy fell to like nearly all-time lows we haven't seen this since march 2021 so peak bull market um where um block subsidies were actually only 86 percent of the total revenue generated by the miners so uh in last month um ordinal fees were four percent and other transaction fees so anything not involving an ordinal uh was about nine and a half percent so that is a pretty notable stat for the depths of a bear market. However, I, I just don't, again, I don't, I don't believe in the ordinals being this long-term solution. So this feels more of like a flash in the pan for me. Um, and again, the fact that we're celebrating the nearly all-time high of, of uh, transaction fees as a percentage of total minor, minor revenue around 14, 15%, that says a lot about a chain that's been around for 10 years. And I just don't love the direction of that narrative as the chain continues to mature and the block subsidies continue to push closer to the next happening. Now, granted, that's been a very, very bullish event over the last, uh, the entire history of crypto. Um, but I do expect that narrative to change at some point. It's like, oh no, the, the halvening's coming again, which means Bitcoin miners are going to start losing revenue. 
Now, very importantly, I got in a ton of Twitter battles over this. It's like, that doesn't mean that Bitcoin is dying. It's that is not, it, it is built mm -hmm. for this exact scenario. It just makes its value proposition less interesting. And as everybody in this space knows, narratives matter. And if you like are, have these dying or these decreasing um, block subsidies, it becomes less attractive to mine the chain and miners start dropping off of the network because it's not profitable to be there for them, which again, does not kill Bitcoin. There's like, that's just an equilibrium where it finds balance until miners drop off and that it pushes the profitability of the remaining miners up to a point where they're making money again. And that's fine. That, that, those economies will work. But again, that's like, that'll get taken out of proportion and ruin this Bitcoin first narrative. Now, you take that, that's kind of how I view Bitcoin right now. And when you think about Ethereum, successful upgrade to proof of stake, success, successful Shanghai Chappella upgrade that um, kind of hardened the proof of stake by enabling withdrawals and dank sharding, proto dank sharding on the way. That is a phenomenal progress that the chain has made over the last six to 12 months and will do so for another six to 12 months that enables it to further reach its vision of this, you know, roll up centric roadmap. So it's, it's going to have positive catalyst after positive catalyst. And when you look at how validators are doing over in that ecosystem, growth has been up and to the right. If we just look at the last three quarters, so Q4 of 2022, Q1 of 23, uh, and the current quarter, Q2. We've seen continued quarter over quarter growth for not only ETH holders, but also ETH stakers. So if you think about like a value flow to ETH holders, you know, that's basically their net dilution. So the amount that was burned in this period versus the amount of ETH issued, uh, because ETH issuance does dilute a holder. Uh, you know, we've seen this number grow significantly quarter over quarter. Uh, in Q4 2022, the net value flow is around 5,000 ETH, uh, whereas in the current quarter, which isn't even over, uh, it's still only it's only about two thirds of the way done. Uh, they've had there's been a va net value flow of about two hundred and seven thousand ETH, so about two hundred times higher. Um, and so that's where things get more interesting to me. Is like, all right, well, we have this more. Sorry, that's forty times, not two hundred times. Nonetheless, um, it has more interesting narratives where holders and stakers are making are generating profit and earning yield. So now it has the yield narrative. Uh, you know, Ren mentioned the importance of this like on-chain native yield is like, well, is it really a risk-free yield? Probably not, but what does it actually mean? That'll just get propagated. And, you know, we recently talked to the Bitwise, um, our folks from Bitwise, uh, and they were like, okay, well, yes, we have this new narrative around Ethereum and like, yes, it's building this roadmap out, roadmap out but institutions are still a little hesitant. It's not like they're all just chucking cash into stake ETH and calling it a day or running their own validators, but they're like, okay, let's, let's check it out. Like there's been a, a sentiment change. It's like, all right, we, we can like, we get something's going on here. Let's investigate it, but we're not ready to commit capital. That is a sentiment change that I think is worthy uh, of kind of pushing this trend forward. Um, and then lastly, you have like this ESG narrative of like proof of work versus proof of, proof of stake. Personally, I think that's like bogus, but you know, if that's what Wall Street wants to propagate, then we'll happily be here for it. Um, so I don't know. To me, it feels like there's just a ton of positive tailwinds for Ethereum and honestly, some headwinds that Bitcoin's going to have to deal with and innovate on. Um, and I think that just bodes well for the future growth of Ethereum relative to Bitcoin. But curious to hear your guys' take on it. Yeah, I mean, you already know I strongly agree with you here. 
And I think just, just put simply, it comes down to flows. Like you said, like if you look at the supply side, proof of work versus proof of stake, uh, you obviously see billions of dollars in sell pressure that's not emitted through proof of stake that is through proof of work. And then you have things like EIP 1559, where the supply of ETH is actually deflationary in most cases and has been this year to a large degree. And then on the demand side, like you said, ETH itself has a lot more utility, not only uses uh, the gas token, but as we see LSTs within DeFi grow, the utility to capture that yield and use those LSTs in whatever way possible just continues to get heightened, whereas Bitcoin sort of its only utility is sending it from one address to another. And so just because of those flows, because of the decrease in supply and increase in demand, I just think over time it's inevitable. And I know these predictions were supposed to be for the back half of 2023. I don't know, Dan, if that's your timeline for the flipping. I think that's a little too early, uh, but I think eventually it is inevitable. Okay, okay, okay. Great point, great point. <laughs> Maybe I cheated a little bit because I even kind of cheated in the 2023 prediction. I said before the end of the next cycle. Um, and yeah, like I don't think that like, – and I, I don't even think Bitcoin's going anywhere. It's just that it won't be the most valuable asset. I think a, uh, the base layer – of a globally distributed financial medium is a more attractive value proposition than something that wants to be money, but I think has flaws in being money. So that's just kind of my view. And I, again, I think you're, you, thank you for pointing that out. I do not think this will happen before the end of 2023, but when we're at the height of next signal or next uh, cycle, this might be a great top signal where the flipping happens. It's like, this is peak euphoria because you probably got that next wave of institutional capital that was like, all right, let's investigate this yield thing. Now's the time, which again is probably going to be a great top signal. But, um, and I'm sure there'll be a, like a longstanding battle between the two at some point after the initial flipping is made, where maybe it gives it back up and takes it again. Like that's, that's kind of how I expect this to play out. I don't expect it to be a, a flipping next month and never looks back type scenario. Yeah, I I think it'll probably be two more cycles before we see a flipping, but I do think it'll happen eventually. And mainly it just stems from like they're tackling really two different problems. Like I don't think the average person actually looks at the current monetary system and thinks there's much of a problem. And that's exactly what Bitcoin is trying to solve with a predictable monetary supply. And like even in a world where we did see hyperinflation of the US dollar, I think that the on and off ramps to crypto would be shut off. So like crypto's primary use case in my, or sorry, Bitcoin's primary use case, in my personal opinion, like is just a tough one to actually be fulfilled like within the next two cycles. So let's call it six, seven years versus Ethereum. Like it makes a lot of sense to a lot of investors. It's like, well, what can you do with Ethereum? It's like you can build actually better products that are cheaper, faster and better for consumers on top of blockchains. So like strongly agree with your prediction. I just think it's going to take a little bit longer to play out. I think one thing that people that maybe like started their career in crypto or like their first introduction of forever finance is crypto don't realize is that there's a huge amount of idle capital out there that's chasing yield. Like as I grew up, the more I realized like, holy shit, people are like so rich and there's so much money out there. And there's like a lot of rich people that are a lot richer than you think. It's like mentally you may just think like yeah sure like Elon Musk like Jeff Bezos but there's like a lot of money out there that's chasing yield and over the years you've seen people sort of like go up further and further the risk curve to chase that yield and after that that potentially basically sometimes it blows up right like there's some carry trades that have blown up in the past 
But all of that's to say that as institutions come in, right? I'm not, I'm probably not an EFMAXI at this point. I wouldn't say I am. But as institutions come in, you're probably going to see a few like crypto tokens as the core assets that potentially one day may have like a trillion or like 10 trillion, okay, maybe not 10 trillion, but a trillion dollar market cap. And you're going to think to yourself, okay, this asset seems like a good index bet. And I can get like a pretty sustainable and a pretty standard yield on it. And I think that's a fantastic value proposition. Yeah, Ren, I, I'm with you there as well. And, you know, I, I think we'll see it. I think we'll see it, like I said, next cycle or this cycle, this coming cycle. But, you know, like uh, like any good man says, if you're wrong, just push back the time horizon. So uh, on that note, Westy, what do you got for us? Yeah, my prediction is definitely related, although bringing in the, the time frame a little bit. But, yeah, my prediction is that the hottest sector for the rest of the year uh, by far will be LSTFI or LSDFI, however you say it. Um, yeah, I think just other sectors as a whole are sort of in a, seeing a lull, like the CK EVMs aren't really seeing adoption. Like a lot of stuff that we thought we were going to see hype with this year really haven't uh, delivered. And I think LSTFI really has. Like throughout the beginning of the year, we saw LSDs with a lot of adoption heading into Chappella. And now we're seeing a lot of really cool DeFi products built around LSTs. And so I think that momentum is going to continue throughout the rest of the year. Um, I think looking at uh, Libra, I think is how you pronounce it, as like a great example of like a protocol that's done really well. So like the past couple of weeks, it's grown to 200 million in TVL like really quickly and just with like a little bit of farming incentives. So you can imagine that's sort of like a small spark that really uh, incentivized a lot of LST capital uh, to come to that protocol. You can only imagine once we get, you know, models that are a little more sustainable on my opinion, that like once those catch on, they're going to really catch on throughout the rest of the year. And I recently wrote a report on the LSD5 sector in its current state at the moment and identified like five broad sectors, and I think each of them will grow. So the first was leverage staking, which has been popularized by Aave, or essentially like you loop your leverage around the LST and are able to capture more yield that way at higher risk. And, you know, yeah, we had Gearbox as of recent that developed their own leverage shaking strategy as well. And I can imagine that a lot of vaults continue to pop up throughout the year, especially now that we have Llama with Curve. I think there's going to be a lot of great products there because they're prioritizing LSTs as the primary collateral. So I think that'll grow a lot. AMM liquidity, I think is pretty straightforward, whichever AMM can capture um, the most you know, amount of LSTs by maximizing yield. I think they're going to capture a lot of market share. And right now, because of Frax's uh, plug into the, the curve complex flywheel, I think they're going to do really well in that space. And Convex, like right now, is the majority player, but I think Balancer and Aura are giving them a run for their money. Uh, the LST baskets, I think, are a really good place for innovation. You have stuff like Unsheath, which has sort of like a basket underneath their LST, and they're creating new protocols. Although right now, it looks like there may be a security vulnerability. Hopefully, they figure that out. But uh, nonetheless, like definitely a lot of experimentation going on there. And you can imagine sort of in a convex type style where if you have a large sort of base of these LSTs, you can build new products, uh, develop new yield strategies that maybe otherwise weren't possible without uh, that backing. Um, and then you have stablecoin collateral. So like I said, Libra has been growing really well. And you have other ones such as Prisma and other liquidity forks that are uh, coming soon that I think are going to spark a lot of uh, innovation, a lot of uh, excitement there. And then interest rate derivatives, I think, are the final sector. And those 
I don't think we'll see a lot, a lot of adoption this year. But as we discussed earlier, as we as the staking yield maybe becomes sort of like the risk-free rate within crypto itself, that there needs to be a way to both trade that yield as well as sort of uh, go between uh, the variable yield and potentially stable yield as well. So I think you know the LST five sector as a whole is going to grow a lot throughout the rest of the year. Yeah, strongly agree with you there, Westy. And uh, the interest rate stuff seems super interesting to me, just because of how prevalent that is in traditional finance. The this I, I actually grouped this into options, though. It's like they're super complicated financial instruments that can add a ton of value, but to a very specific class of of people. Um, and that specific class of people isn't on chain today, and I don't think we'll be on chain tomorrow. Um, but I do think they'll be here eventually. And so for that reason, I'm like just a little bearish on the uh, the the usage of those things uh, in, the, in the coming short to medium term. Um, but you mentioned a ton of other really interesting things there that we should unpack. And, and as you mentioned, yeah, Unsheath is down like 60% on the day. I think they pause withdrawals. This is a developing situation. I, I really don't know the extent of what's going on there, but they must have had some issue related to their withdrawal mechanism um, and have paused those right now. So uh, sad to see that one go. But that's a kind of highlight. That's going to highlight of I expect to see a lot of this going forward and people just essentially taking LSTs provide putting on doing something with them, whether it's like leveraging the yield or some product that they can attract and grow capital into. Um, you're going to see a ton of rapid growth and you're going to see projects fizzle out for, uh, again, just trying to capitalize on that rapid growth while sacrificing maybe some, some of the slow and steady growth that you tend to see from some of these larger, more dominant protocols. Uh, but is there a particular area that you're most excited about Westy? Yeah, for me, the, the area I'm most excited about is sort of, using LST as a stablecoin collateral, because, I mean, if you look at liquidity in its current form, you can only have ETH as collateral and you have 0% interest loans. And you can imagine if you apply that to LSTs, you can have not only 0% interest rates borrowing against your LSTs, but you can imagine because of the, the stablecoin infrastructure we've built around Curve and Convex, Balancer and Aura, et cetera, that you can have really high yields for the stablecoin as well. So you can build sort of like a an ultra DeFi protocol that has yield not only on the collateral end, but on the stablecoin end. And so I think something along those lines is going to do extremely well, if not multiple protocols. And that's probably the area that has the most growth and is not as straightforward as something like leverage staking, where you just find different ways to leverage your assets. Like I think there's going to be a lot of creativity in this area. Yeah, strong second on the uh, stablecoin backed by LSTs. I would love to see a, a protocol with a super long-term vision actually set aside some of the yield on the LSTs into an insurance fund. And then after that compounds for like 10, 20 years, there's some really interesting stuff you'd be able to do on the more under-collateralized lending side, but not sure we'll actually get that. But one thing's for sure, we definitely need like a decentralized stablecoin. So I'm definitely rooting for that there. But my question for you on that theory, Westy, would be, um, so obviously maker has like the, the PSM in order to keep die, uh, at the peg. Cause back in May of 2020 or whatever it was, we saw uh, a big liquidation cascade. Everyone had to buy back die, die price went up, which made it more expensive to close loans. I foresee the same problem happening here without a PSM type module with USDC or USDT to be able to keep the peg strong. Do you have any thoughts on that and how to circumvent that while maintaining decentralization? Yeah, that's definitely a good point. And that's why I don't think Libra is necessarily a sustainable model because they're hard pegging to USD and there's really nothing stopping 
especially the US dollar stable coin from trading above peg, especially because it has inherent yield. And from there, you can sort of get a liquidation cascade as the, the, the value goes up, the value of the, the, the health factor of the loans go down, and all of a sudden, uh, you have a large liquidation cascade, which is obviously not good. But all, in other models, you can imagine maybe not hard pegging to the US dollar, maybe having some sort of floating peg. You can imagine potentially having a PSM with maybe die specifically because now you have the savings rate and sort of like an LST backed loan, you can have sort of uh, a die backed loan. And, and in that sense, you can still have yield as collateral and have like a better uh, pegging that way. Um, but yeah, overall, and, and also there's another model. I don't know if you guys have heard of cat in the box, but essentially rather than like a US dollar stable coin, it's an ETH stable coin. And in that way, you can have better capital efficiency because you can borrow at like a pretty high LTV and it's not like hard peg to ETH. It's pretty soft pegs. So like there's a lot of creativity that can go into these things. And yeah, like you said, you have to be careful to hard peg if you hard peg, like to make sure there's some sort of PSM or way to 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 stabilize things. But overall, I think that's why I'm most excited about this industry is because like there's a lot of creativity that, that can go into these models. I think one interesting thing to watch for LST5 over the coming years is whether ETH interest rates are more efficient than US dollar interest rates on chain. I haven't really thought through whether that would be indicative of anything, but you know, in a purely like efficient market, the cost of borrow ETH on Aave should be the same as a staking UDBC on ETH, right? And just off of the top of my head, I think ETH interest rates being more like in sync across like different chains or different protocols may actually indicate sort of like um, a more, I don't know, like moneyness or like more riskless component to ETH compared to USDC or like some other stable coin if those stable coins were less like efficient or in sync in terms of interest rates on chain. I think that'd be a very interesting dynamic to stay tuned for. Yeah, that is a pretty interesting to think about, uh, Ren. Uh, I, I kind of like thinking about that as well, right? Just because the the looping trade has been so popular on things like Aave, because you can borrow ETH for less than you're going to earn uh, on the LST. So you're actually like, by looping it, you're, you're still earning profit. But eventually there'll be a point where that's that's a non-profitable th- venture because the cost to borrow the ETH from the pool uh, will be equal to or, or cl- equal, close enough to the ETH staking yield that it's just not a profitable uh, strategy to execute anymore. And that's likely the direction we're going, I would have to think, um, just as markets get more efficient. And I mean, it's it, there's just money on the table for people to kind of get involved with and, and take uh, in, a, in a relatively low, low risk way. Um, so yeah, I, I don't really expect to, to see this inefficiency last for too, too much longer. You know, Westy, one more th- thing on this note I want to get your take on is we've seen LSTs really, really grab a hold of the lending market, but they haven't really come too, too in much into the forefront of the DEX market. Um, so you still see a lot of the more popular pairs have ETH or USDC. Do you think there's a state where uh, an LST token itself becomes like the most popular base pair? Yeah, I definitely see that feature happening just because like as an LP, you're you're going to want to accrue as much yield as possible. And if one of your assets is sort of that like automatic rebasing token where the, the price, um, you get more of a relative ETH 
to the the LSD that you have. Like, I think that's just like a no brainer in most people's brains. I think the question is, you know, which LSD is the one that like is able to capture that market. I think uh, Rap Steak ETH has a good chance of capturing a lot of that on Uniswap. I think uh, Staked uh, Frax ETH has a really good chance of doing that within Curve and Convex, and then potentially uh, Rocket Pool ETH within Balancer and Aura. So I think I don't think it's going to be a winner take all. I think there's going to be a lot of different pools. Uh, with with different uh, LSTs in this area, but I agree that it just makes sense to have uh, the asset paired with like a, a an LST rather than uh, wrapped ETH. Um, and so, yeah, over time, I think as people trust these LSTs more, as there's more liquidity, it's sort of uh, going to become a flywheel and they're definitely going to be the most used asset within these pools. Now, that's a super interesting take because I always hear people talk about this, how it's like for sure going to be this winner-take-all scenario. Stake ETH has such an advantage because Lido just has so much market share right now. And that's kind of seems to be like, I guess, maybe even the middle of the bell curve take. But you had a great point. And uh, I actually have a flip side dashboard out there that kind of highlights all of this. But different LSTs have very different dominance levels on different decentralized exchanges. And that is an excellent point uh, about how each DEX might have its own more popular pair. I'm going to play around with that idea. That's uh, something really interesting to think about. Yeah, you just know Frax isn't going to allow Wrap Staked ETH to be a majority pair on any pool within Convex. And so, right, right. And they have the they got the firepower to make it a problem for Lido. And Lido's like should you know they have a close relationship with the curve they should want to continue that relationship going they have 1.6 or 7 billion dollars of staked eth on curve like and they and curved pools don't need uh to actually have the wrap staked ETH. you can still use the rebasing token in the pools and lps still get the rewards which is unlike most other dexes so um yeah this is a super interesting concept we should dive into this more probably a good place to uh to pivot here ren what do you have for your 2023 prediction my rest of the 2023 prediction is that CCTP, Circles Cross-Chain Transfer Protocol, will be utilized in more than 85% of USDC transaction volume by your end. So for those that are unfamiliar, CCTP is basically a cross-chain uh, infrastructure protocol where anyone can permissionlessly mint and burn native USDC on supported blockchains. As of today, it's only Ethereum and Avalanche, but by the end of the year, Circle is planning on supporting a few more blockchains, including Solana and other chains that they have native USDC on. Basically, USDC represents a much better value proposition for a few reasons. Number one, you're getting native USDC on the destination chain rather than a wrapped version of USDC. Number two, you have sort of a change in the trust assumptions from whatever bridge that you were originally using to Circle. And after all of the bridge hacks of 2021 and 2022, probably 2.5 billion or 3 billion has been gone by now, it's possible that users are going to trust Circle more than whatever bridge that they were originally using, especially if they're minting wrapped versions of those assets. And the two largest stable coins today, right? USDT, USDC. I think people often forget that USDT, even though it has a much higher market cap, like 80 billion, probably 50 or 60 billion of that is just sitting on Tron and just farming or just like skirting Chinese capital controls. And it doesn't really go outside of the Tron 
network, whereas USDC for most of like the large bridges today represent between 30 and 60% of transaction volumes. And so because it represents a better value proposition and it basically represents a better bridge execution method, I think that's going to significantly change how bridges will basically generate their revenue. The key point here is that bridges will probably make less money and they're going to have to integrate CCTV because it just provides a vastly better execution. Here. There is a small caveat here that um, USDC and CCTP, you need to wait a longer time because you need to wait for finality on your origin chain. Whereas some bridges out there, for example, Synapse, you only wait like 20 seconds. Sometimes if you want to do like a USDC bridge transaction. And so there's still going to be like a range of preferences, right? Um, maybe you don't want to wait 15 minutes. Maybe you only want to wait 20 seconds. But overall, I still hold true to my thesis that I think CCTP is going to be utilized in more than 85, if not 90% of USDC transaction, average uh, transaction volume by year end. Yeah, I think it's important too to distinguish that you meant uh, bridge transaction volume because obviously there's a hell of a lot of uh, raw transaction volume of USDC. Um, but yeah, I strongly agree with you, Ren. I mean, the way I see it is like, why would I lock up ETH on Ethereum and then mint a, or a wrapped asset on Avalanche and take on that bridge risk when I can just go via USDC and know that I have Circle backing that transaction? Like, there's just no competition there. It's going to be by far the most secure way to bridge. It'll probably be one of the cheapest. That's for sure the only way I'll be doing it. Yeah, I'm with you as well. It's like, if I'm not worried about Circle freezing my money in the middle of this transfer, then I, I don't see why you wouldn't do this, to be honest. It'll be your most secure way. And like anybody that's bridged before knows the stress of, at least with like on-chain transfers, even though it can still be stressful, especially the first couple of times you do it, you at least get like Etherscan loaded up and you can see it like pending. <laughs> Everybody knows those bridge explorers don't quite work the same. And you have those moments of like, where the hell is my transaction? Um, yeah, flashbacks to bridging to Canto uh, before the, the UI was even live. But uh, nonetheless, it's like, this just seems like a serious improvement. And even things like ThorChain, um, which kind of takes a, a different approach and is strictly native assets, you still have exposure to the the structure of the system while your your bridge is being or your bridge transaction is being executed, um, and so like I've used Thorchain quite a bit. I deeply love what they're doing. They can actually connect to Bitcoin, which is super cool, and nobody else can really hold that hold water with that as well. Um, but this still just feels like a better way to do it to me. I, I, I'm with you. I think uh, we're gonna see high usage of this, Ren. I think one thing that. I'd like to add is that sure today, like a lot of bridge volume comes in the form of ETH, maybe, I don't know, 30 to 50% of bridge volume is still in ETH, but I want to bet that the actual like 1 billion users, if we ever reach mass adoption, most of them are going to use a stable coin and they're going to denominate their transactions in stable coins rather than ETH. And you know, with things like DYDX before coming on to Cosmos and they use USDC for collateral, native USDC coming to both Cosmos and Celestia rollups, I think USDC could become the stable coin of choice for everyone, you know? And at that point, if CBD, uh, USDC becomes a stable coin of choice, there was another thought that I had while writing my most recent report, definitely go check that out if you haven't. 
that basically people don't really want to provide bridge liquidity anymore because with USDC, anything that's paired with USDC in a DEX liquidity pool basically becomes bridge liquidity and it becomes native bridge liquidity, right? So for example, if USDC is probably the most liquid pairs on most blockchains today, maybe other than like ARP, ETH, like whatever like native like token of that blockchain is. And over time, if you think about it, with CCTP coming online, if someone wants to make a cross-chain swap, rather than using a bridge where someone else has to provide that liquidity, USDC can act as an intermediary and you can basically make a cross-chain swap using a DEX on chain one and another DEX on chain two. And I think that's a sort of like big mental model unlock that I had while writing this report that I'm not saying like bridges are dead. I'm just saying they may need to review their either like security models or revenue models because they don't even need like USDC liquidity anymore. Like for example, Synapse, right? They use a curve stable swap formula to basically balance or proofs and price a cross-chain swap or bridge transaction. But they have plans on integrating CCTP for USDC transactions. And if you don't need USDC liquidity, how are like Synapse stable swap proofs gonna function? They're probably going to need to relaunch them without USCC, which I think is also an interesting application of CCTV. So definitely look very hard at your bridge tokens and how you think they're going to perform over the next one or two years. It's going to be a base filled year. The flipping still on the table. LSD Fi is going to be the chief narrative. I strongly agree with that take, Westy. And CCTP is going to eat the bridges. Um, or at least can make them force them to reevaluate their business models. So that's kind of what we're thinking. And that's us kind of look into our heads of what we're thinking about the next six months. Um, want to give another shout out to the Atom Accelerator. Be sure to check them out. Uh, we, we love what they're doing over there for the Cosmos ecosystem and the Atom Economic Zone. So be sure to give them a check out. Uh, but that's, that's going to be it from us, guys. We'll, we will see you next week.